Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Tender God, will you take my poor words and make something beautiful from them? Amen. Nobody pulls for Goliath. Pulling for Goliath is like pulling for the Yankees. If you didn't grow up in shouting distance of those five boroughs, it's just bad form. In U.S. college sports, not of great interest to Canadians, I grant, my beloved Duke basketball are the Yankees. Everyone pulls against us. Everyone's happy when we lose. Everyone shrugs when we win. In our culture, people love the underdog. Is the overdog even a thing? In the movie Hoosiers, a tiny rural high school in Indiana wins an impossible state championship. And in the locker room before the game, a chaplain steps up and reads this. David took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine in the forehead and he fell face down on the ground. The problem is that was 1951, and no school that small ever won a championship again until the state of Indiana changed the format of the tournament. Now David doesn't even play Goliath anymore. That's hard to make a movie about. In real life, it's wise to bet on Goliath. How many World Series have the Yankees won? Don't check. It's depressing. I did the Googling for you. The answer is 27. Now think of Michelangelo's sculpture, David. Josh is flashing this on the screen for our folks watching online. David is massive, menacing, awe-inspiring. In other words, David is transformed into Goliath. That's not quite what the story says. Glorious as that scripture is. You get the point I'm making. The story of David and Goliath gets hazy when we retell it. Everyone wants to identify with the winner, scrappy, outmatched young David, even if, in fact, we are Goliath in real life, just like everyone in North America thinks we're middle class. My home country, the U.S., still thinks of ourselves as the underdog David. Could y'all tell us that we've actually been Goliath for 75 or so years now? We should get used to that fact. Now, switching from geopolitics to the safer territory of ice hockey, I think, I know why U.S.-Canada hockey games are so exciting. Because both those teams think they're David and the other guy's Goliath. Now, in the Bible, (laughs) the story of David and Goliath is more nuanced. It deserves a second look as we conclude this series on the strangeness in the Bible. The Israelites are arrayed against their Philistine enemy, each on one mountain with a valley in between the two. And a champion comes forth from the Philistine side. Goliath is massive, Nine feet tall, our story says. His breastplate alone weighs 130 pounds. I bet you David doesn't weigh 130 pounds. 
Goliath is bristling with armor and weaponry so much he needs another guy to carry some of his weaponry. That's what a shield bearer is. Hey, I'm out of arms here. Can someone else hold this shield up? Not only that, Goliath's weapons are made of iron. You know how historians divide up history with metal technology? Well, the Bronze Age is before the Iron Age. Goliath has Iron Age weapons. Israel is stuck in the past. These two are not even playing the same game. This is U.S. versus Canada if one side has no skates and no sticks. Now, the choice of a champion is something that many cultures have done in warfare. Instead of a whole battle where everyone gets bloody, each side just choose their best fighter, meet in the middle, and sort this thing out. Ancient Greeks tell stories of titanic feuds between Greeks and Trojans where Achilles and Hector represent the two armies and the earth shakes under their feet. No Greek story would have ever trotted out a preteen unarmored to face a proper champion. You've messed up the story. Boxing has weight classes for a reason. Heavyweights don't fight welterweights. The same with wrestling. David isn't a boxer or a wrestler. He's a kid and a shepherd. So choosing a proxy champion can stave off actual warfare. And Goliath even says this, hey, if I win, my side wins. You choose a champion, if that guy wins, your side wins. Everybody goes home, no need for a battle, just two of us. But the Israelites all take one good look at Goliath and they say, you know what, we're good over here on our mountainside listening to you blaspheme against God. Only David seems to know what Goliath doesn't, what King Saul doesn't, what Israel doesn't, what the Philistines don't. David knows Israel has the living God on its side. Every other so-called God is false. So this story is not about a plucky underdog overachieving against the odds. It's about the true God of Israel who takes sides. It's like the parting of the Red Sea. Moses is told by God, hey, look, don't fight. Just stand still. God will fight for you. And all of Egypt drowns. Or the story of Gideon when he has 10,000 soldiers and he thinks, eh, it's too much. People will think we won this because of our arms. Let's weed this army down to 300. And then everyone will know only God could bring victory. Most look at Goliath and they wisely say, yeah, I'm not going out there. David looks at Goliath and sees an uncircumcised giant taunting the people of God. And he knows the Lord is on his side. And he's having none of it. So one scholar says this story is about truth versus appearances. Goliath looks unbeatable. David looks pathetic. But that's before you take their gods into the equation. David promises in verse 47, all this assembly will know. That the Lord does not save by sword and spear. The battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. 
one of my favorite spaces in this church, something you can't see if you're online, unfortunately, is our West Chapel over here. I love all the angels and saints in stained glass on the outside wall, worshiping alongside us. I only learned recently that chapel used to be called the Warrior's Chapel. Our boys came home from fighting in Europe and were honored with that space. Look, the angels fought for you. I wonder when we changed the name to the more Pacific Geographic West Chapel. Anyway, I bet our fellow Canadians were glad to have the angels on their side, but what they really wanted was better technology than the Germans. Overwhelming numbers, superior leadership and strategy. Angels are nice, but those other things you gotta have. I don't blame them. Do you? Israel's strategy is different. Inferior tech, that's fine. Too few soldiers, that's better, actually. In fact, sometimes don't fight at all. God will do all the work for you. This is not advice that our warriors took with them to Vimy Ridge or Juno Beach. Now, here's the thing. David is no slouch. King Saul tries to dissuade him. Uh, so you're a child, and Goliath has been a warrior since he was a child. Our dog, Charlie, used to bark at other dogs that were much bigger and meaner than he was. I tried to tell him, uh, you've never even been in a fight? You wouldn't know what to do. But apparently, I don't speak dog very well. David tells King Saul, look, I fought lions and bears with my bare hands. I can take on this Goliath animal, too. Shepherds have to be courageous. The sheep need them. There are wild, hungry animals out there. And in the part of our story that we had to cut for time, actually that story goes on much longer. <laughs> Saul says, here, put my armor on. David obliges. He clanks around awkwardly in the stuff. And he says, yeah, I I'm not wearing this. It doesn't fit me. In whatever fight we face, we can't wear someone else's armor. We have to fight in what makes us, us. No borrowed armor, please. Fight with what got you there. So that's what David does. He gathers five smooth stones. Only five. Not a lot of ammunition. I mean, if a sling was your only weapon, I bet you'd gather 500 stones. What's wrong with 5,000? But off he goes. Malcolm Gladwell, the great Canadian writer, wrote a whole book about being an underdog and how there are inherent advantages to being the underdog. And his book is called, you guessed it, David and Goliath. And he writes in one place that a sling firing a stone in the ancient world could be as deadly as a bullet coming from a gun, and just as fast. A gunsmith wrote a review and said, uh, no, it can't. <laughs> Now, I've been to the Valley of Elah in Israel, where this battle took place. Tour buses stop in the middle of the valley, everyone gets off, and everyone picks up a stone. I mean, who knows? That could be the stone that felled Goliath himself. The smoother, the better. The nation-state of Israel is another Goliath that thinks it's David, like my U.S., 
Israel is nuclear-armed, Western-backed, highly advanced technologically. There's a reason Palestinian protesters throw stones. Because if they drew a bigger weapon, they'd be annihilated. And the little Palestinian kid throwing a stone at an Israeli tank looks a lot more like David than like Goliath. In my sermons, I say lots of nice things about Israel. I will never not do that. But Israel, I mean theologically. All the daughters and sons of Abraham and Sarah, Judaism, and us Christians who are grafted in by faith. I don't necessarily mean the country Israel, with a flag and a policy and an army and all the rest of that, much as I admire it. Here's the problem. That country, like my U.S., is Goliath that thinks it's David. And that's when you can get in trouble. And there is plenty of room for everybody to have a home. The point of this story is that David shouldn't win, usually doesn't. Under any normal circumstances, Saul is right. Try this armor on, at least you won't die so fast. If bronze can't defeat iron, rocks sure can't defeat iron. I got this from another preacher. Einstein said he didn't know how World War III would happen, but he knew how World War IV would be fought with rocks. One thing David has going for him, the only thing, is his God, Israel's God, is the only God there is. All others are pretenders. The Philistine curses David by his gods. David, in their pre-match trash talk, says this, you come to me with spear and javelin and sword, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And David rushes into battle. He fires that stone before Goliath even gets moving, and it finds its mark. Five stones were too many. Four go unused. And this, then this delicious detail. Could you, could you feel Bill's discomfort as he was reading this detail? David cuts off Goliath's head with Goliath's own sword. And Scripture goes out of its way to say, there was no sword in David's hand. Hey, um, dying opponent, can I borrow your sword? You're not going to need it anymore. In fine art images of this part of the story, David can't even lift Goliath's severed head. <laughs> it's too heavy for this scrawny kid. Goliath's nine-foot sword becomes a trophy in Israel. David keeps it and all the rest of Goliath's armor. Think about that trophy. Look at all this magnificent armor. The guy who wore it died before the battle even started. Armor can't save. Only God can. So what do we make of this story? If it's just a preference for the underdog brains over brawn, that's not very interesting. It's also certainly no military strategy, at least none that any actual soldier wants. Ukraine would not be pleased if we stopped sending advanced weaponry and started sending smooth stones and slings. The story attacks our faith in technology. If the Philistines are proud of their, bronze, of their iron against Israel's bronze, 
David responds by backtracking to the Stone Age. This is not how technology works. Scripture is saying clearly, technology can't save. I think that's maybe the most countercultural thing in this whole story against our contemporary mythologies. What else is going on here? This story is a contrast between two kings. Saul is Israel's first ever king, and all Saul does turns to failure. Saul just can't bring himself to listen to the living God. So the whole premise of this story is the failure of King Saul. He should go fight Goliath, not this little kid. Or else all the soldiers in Israel should be vying to go represent Saul, fighting the Philistine. None of them volunteers. Not one will die for their king. In fact, before this story takes place, David has already been anointed the new king of Israel in secret. David is not just a threat to Goliath. He's a threat to Saul. And Saul doesn't know it. But David listens to God, no matter what. So he's loyal to King Saul and does nothing but support him. But poor Saul can't get anything right. He later ends up dead, mutilated with his sons by Israel's enemies. You know how my U.S. treasures the legacy of George Washington? And you guys do the same with John A. MacDonald in your kind of quiet, humble brag kind of way. Israel's first leader is a humiliation, an embarrassment. Now, David starts out his career great. He slays Goliath. He takes the throne. He conquers Jerusalem. He rules over his enemies. He sings the psalms that we still sing. Some of the greatest sculpture ever made is of conquering David, not just by Michelangelo, but by Donatello and Caravaggio and lots of other Ninja Turtles also involved. But David doesn't stay so great. David winds up as unfaithful as Saul. He takes not just Goliath's head, but Bathsheba, the wife of his most loyal soldier, whom he has murdered. David fades from youthful glory to aged unfaithfulness. His story goes backwards from what we should expect. David's story arc bends in the wrong direction. Find me a faithful king in Israel. You can't do it. There is none. Because kings end up trusting in their own power and not the power of the living God. There's a reason we remember this story fondly. It's because this is David's best story. David is like the cool kid in high school who intimidated everybody, but then they peaked at age 17 and keep reliving their secondary school greatness. Israel's scripture, Judaism's story, mistrusts power, all power. Now, in most of our politics, we mistrust power if the other guy has it. But if we have it, boy, we'll do everything right, won't we? Not in Scripture. Scripture mistrusts power even when it's in our hands, especially when it's in our hands. In North America, 
the left tends to trust science, academia, intellectuals, journalism, progress. The right tends to trust the market, corporate success, the military, tradition. I just wonder, why does any of us trust any of them? They're all led by sinners, us included. There are no non-sinners available to run any of these institutions. This is what J.R.R. Tolkien understood so well. Yeah, the ring is beautiful and powerful. Don't wear it. It can't not corrupt you because all power really belongs to the living God. So Christians should be anarchists in this sense, not vandals, not people who break stuff, but whoever's in power anywhere, we don't trust them. Because whatever power is just borrowed from the resurrected Christ. That's especially true of power in the church, not just in the world. It's true everywhere. Anyone has authority. Power is always borrowed from Jesus. And then it betrays him with a kiss. David cuts off Goliath's head with his own sword. Our forebears in Israel and in the church loved this detail. David borrows a sword because he has none. Goliath goes into battle having sharpened that sword, sure that it will drink no one's blood but his enemies. And it takes his. Ancient Christians point out this. Evil is self-destructive. It's like Goliath's sword. Evil is its own undoing. So some examples. The movie Oppenheimer is about to open, about the man who built the first nuclear bombs. You'll notice his surname is German. His family was a Jewish family that got out of Europe, and then he got busy with a lot of other German Jewish scientists building a bomb for the Allies. Fleeing Germany's anti-Semitism, they helped the Allies win the war. You'd think the Germans might have thought, oh yeah, if we run off all of our smartest people, it'll hurt us. Another example, the Nazis spent huge resources destroying Judaism, resources that could have been used, I don't know, fighting the war. You see how evil is self-defeating. It's true in Israel's story, too. In the story of Esther, the king sets out to destroy the Jewish people, and Haman builds a gallows to execute Jewish people. Who ends up hanged on those gallows? Haman himself. Don't build something to execute people. You'll meet the business end of it. It's true in modernity, too. Robespierre was leader in the French Revolution that killed 20,000 people with the guillotine. Who else ended up facing the guillotine? You guessed it, Robespierre himself. In our age, we're fascinated with evil. Every actor wants to play the villain. Someone wise pointed out the History Channel should rename itself the Hitler Channel. It can't imagine its programming without that little mustached toad. It's wrong, y'all. Evil is not interesting. It's self-defeating. It's good that's interesting, nuanced, layered, and worth exploration. Evil always dies by its own hand. Here's what else this story is about. Not the triumph of the underdog, but the power of the living God. 
the pathetic self-importance of evil as it disintegrates. And then this, mostly this. Okay, altogether this. David has killed lions and bears before with his bare hands. Now he fells Goliath with a single rock. Our ancestors in the church saw this as a sign of how Christ conquers. Shepherds look weak. They're actually quite strong. So one early church writer says this, Jesus is the one who conquers the whole world, not with a sword, but with a cross. Jesus is the one who conquers the whole world, not with a sword, like all of our rulers, but with a cross. David defeats beasts like the lion, the bear, the Goliath. Just as Christ does battle with Satan and the demons and leaves them unarmed. Jesus' cross is a victory that looks like a defeat. But it turns out to be the only victory humanity ever needs. David runs down into that valley unarmored, unprepared, unready, un, un, un. Just like the Son of God runs down into our vulnerable flesh unarmored, unprepared, unready, un, 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 and then dies our death. When we call Jesus Christ, that's not his last name. It means Messiah, anointed one, king. And he's Israel's greatest king. David, Solomon, all the rest, just like all of us, are flawed. We can't help but do it wrong. Jesus is the one with no flaws, no sins, nothing to lament, unlike any human creature ever. Jesus, Jesus triumphs where all kings, including Israel's, including us, fail. And we keep his cross as our trophy, like Israel kept Goliath's sword. Y'all, the great Goliath that faces all of us is death. There's no avoiding it. With all our technological wizardry, with everything they can do in hospitals, all of us faces that Goliath. It wins every time. And that's why no one pulls for Goliath. Death wins against Jesus, too. But then Jesus undoes death from within, strips its gears, destroys its mechanics of war, undoes it all with his deathless life. And so now, we have nothing to fear from it, whatever our Goliath is. So go ahead, picture your Goliath or the two or three that you're facing in your life. I know you can visualize it. Now, see David's stone sink into its forehead. It is beheaded by Goliath's own sword. Christ's cross trips up its arrogance. And now we go forth and live. Amen. Let us pray our pastoral prayer. Father in heaven, as we gaze in amazement into your universe, a fraction of what the human eye can see, we are aware of your creation. 
And yet, beyond the mystery that is you, you continually speak to us in ways seen and unseen. Thunder and lightning announce your powerful presence. A single raindrop, your gentle presence. Sunshine that brings us warmth and makes the planet flourish. And a rainbow, a sign of peace and reconciliation. We come here honoring and praising you for giving us life and for Jesus who embodied perfection, the one who taught us the way and the one who provided a glimpse into your being. Lord, we pray for our church, for all those in it, and for all those who enter for the first time. As we encounter new challenges, may we boldly move forward beyond the comfortable and embrace a new vision in spreading the good news. To seize new opportunities to make transformative change, to try the untried, and where impossible becomes possible. And may we as disciples in Christ take our personal ministry beyond the walls of the sanctuary into community. Lord, there's much suffering in the world. It is the human condition. Lonely people, abandoned people, people in physical, emotional, and spiritual pain. She sits alone, forlorn, in silence, looking at pictures taped to the wall, seeing but not understanding. He sits surrounded by strangers in a hospice, friends all gone, family abandoned. Every day she is ravaged by searing, unrelentless, unforgiving pain. She prays constantly, take me, Lord. Lord, we do not ask why, but ask fervently that in their hour of need, through your grace and love for all your children, grant them peace and comfort. Lord, we pray for our city and cities everywhere and all the people in it especially those who Jesus ministered to, ordinary people, desperate people, refugees, those living on the fringe of society, people who we see every day, visible but invisible people who in many ways have been neglected and are faceless and are referred to tragically in cold statistics, crime rates, opiate deaths, poverty, homelessness, the list goes on. With a new mayor, a new agenda, and a new vision for our city, may there be honorable engagement and accountability with all levels of government to finally make right for those truly in need. And lastly, Lord, we pray for ourselves, each with our own burdens. By your boundless grace and love, may we maintain our faith and trust in you when we feel overwhelmed 
and immobilized, when we are confronted by our own Goliath that tests our resilience and faith, help us to put our fears aside and become emboldened in overcoming adversity, knowing you are with us always. May your grace that passes all understanding abide in us now and forevermore. And together, let us pray together the great prayer that Jesus taught us to say when addressing the Father. It's listed in your order of service. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive